Welcome to the Table Dallas podcast. At the Table Dallas, we create a sacred space to worship, connecting our stories with the story of God as revealed in scriptures. We invite you now to listen to this week's discussion. All right, to the Table Dallas, we're glad that you're joining us on this beautiful day, this Sunday in July, whether you're joining us live here at beautiful Mill Street House or somewhere else around the world at some later point through our podcast. We're glad that you're with us as we journey through the Gospel of Luke this summer. Luke this summer. We just finished a discussion here at the table about movies, TV shows, and novels that um, make use of the conflict between characters. And one very wise sage in our group said, basically, that's every movie, every film, every novel ever made. Uh, But that may be true. And it's certainly true, I think, of our text this morning. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, as we continue in our journey, we're going to be at the very last few verses here, 31 through 35. And um, we see Jesus in this text today. Um, He's keenly aware. He's keenly aware of the threat, I think, now. The threat that um, is posed by not just of the religious leaders of his day, um, so to speak, but also the political leaders of his day. And we're introduced again to this character, Herod. This isn't the same Herod. This is the son of the Herod of the Jesus birth story. But yes, uh, probably even worse than his father, a very, very, very evil character in the story. And so we're introduced to him, or he comes back into the story um, in our text today as well. And so there's a conflict happening here, and it's been building now because, as we said before in the Gospel of Luke, it seems like um, Luke's theme is Jesus is on his way. He's working his way toward Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And what what awaits him in Jerusalem? Trouble. Trouble, for sure. And what we know now later as his his, uh, betrayal, ultimately his, uh, his faux trial, his death, We know he's been buried, and then his resurrection, those things that are taking place. So he's on his way there. And another thing about Luke that we like is he seems to be on his way um, either to, at, or from, what? A party. A party, or a meal, or a dinner. There's something happening there, okay? So we're going to pick up the story in Luke chapter 13. We're going to do it a little bit differently, because I want to kind of break it down. There's not a lot of verses. It's just 31 through 35. Um, but I want to kind of take them a little bit uh, piece by piece and see if we can't, um, you know, kind of focus in on what's, um, what's being said here. Okay, so in Luke chapter 13, beginning at verse 31, this is after we picked up with the story last week, right, about uh, who will be saved, only a few be saved, was the question last week. And then it says, now in verse 31, at that time, some Pharisees, who are they? Who are the Pharisees? Yeah, they're the religious leaders. They're the interpreters of the law, right? They are the ones who are in charge of not just the religious system, but basically the whole cultural system of what's happening there, right? All right, so some Pharisees, as opposed to last week, which was someone, so this is a group of people, approach Jesus and say, go, get away from here, because Herod wants to kill you. All right, let's pause there for just a second, all right? Because there's a few questions that come to mind for me immediately, all right? First of all, why do you think Herod, not the Pharisees, but why do you think Herod feels like he needs to 
to take out Jesus. This is assuming, of course, that we believe the report of the Pharisees. Right? Let's start there. Let's begin with, we believe that they honestly believe that this is a threat, or that Herod has posed a threat before, and so he's a real threat here. Why does Herod feel like he needs to take out Jesus? In other words, why is he the threat to him? Anybody? Afraid of a rebellion that Jesus could motivate the the people to rebel. Okay. He's got a large crowd following him now. Okay. He certainly has a lot a large crowd. There's certainly um, a sense, I guess, uh, if I understand what you're saying, Mike. Maybe there's a there's that that feeling amongst the crowd that it's not just a crowd. I mean, there's a difference between a crowd just gathering. Like to celebrate, and a crowd when you're like, oh, this might not be good. Isn't that fair? Mm-hmm. Have you experienced that before? The difference between a crowd where it's like, oh, this is okay, and a crowd where like, it's like you can't really put your finger on it, but you can tell, right? It's like a rumbling. Yeah, it's like this. There's like this undercurrent, this rumbling where you're like, it's not going to take a whole lot for this thing to ignite. Right? Go ahead. Is this a different Herod than the Herod that tried to kill all the babies because of yes, the Yes, this is his son. Okay. Yeah. That's his son, but he's yeah. just as bad. Mm. Yeah. He's probably worse. He has uh, some history tells us he, he had some real severe mental issues that caused him all kinds of trouble. Yeah. Do you think he could have connected the dots that Jesus was Mary and Joseph's son? Ooh, that's an interesting question. Whether or not Herod, the son of the Herod who tried to wipe out every child because he was afraid of this Jesus character, do you think that he knew that Jesus was that child that escaped his father? That's a good question. What do you guys think? Because Jesus' followers thought he was going to be king. So wouldn't it make sense that Herod, that was the leader, would want to get rid of this guy? If there were prophecies and his dad was afraid of those prophecies too, it seems possible. Yeah, he put... A and B and C together, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and he probably caught some of the the stories that Jesus was telling about the kingdom and what the kingdom looks like. Yeah. So that's all to him. That's all a threat. Because yeah. remember, we know from history he's not really a king, right? right? I mean, he is in name only. I mean, he's this puppet king has been put in place, right, for that purpose, not to benefit the Jews, but to benefit. Rome. Okay, now, I'm looking right at you. So, if, um, if all the people think that the Messiah is going to demolish the current rule and Jesus will be the new ruler over the land, then he's going to be getting these reports. The people think this guy is going to be, um, you know, taking over. And, and so, I mean, I think he would, like, have his ear to the ground on what the people were, were reporting about Jesus, even though that wasn't what... Jesus right. was, but, but, the, but the new kingdom on earth that the people thought was going to come about, I think maybe he is hearing that. Right, certainly. And that feels like a threat to his kingdom, if you will. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it was a threat to his kingdom, but I feel like it's more because of Roman rule. There's an uprising in the city. What did the Romans do? Yeah, we're taking him out. Yeah. yeah, he's not doing his job. So. Again, still a threat to him, but maybe in a slightly different way. Okay. Uh, Luke. Nine says that Herod thought that baby Jesus was John that rose from the dead. Yeah, yeah. So you remember, he's the one. This is the Herod. Who? Oh man, let's see. I don't even think I can do it. It's like his sister. I get it all confused. It, it was his, his brother's 
wife. Brother's wife, but it's also a cousin. I mean, it's really, really yeah. weird. And I mean, that's one thing that he did. And of course, then in his drunken stupor, he agrees to this really crazy thing that, uh, you know, story. Anyway, John the Baptist ends up dead, right? And by the way, this isn't far from where that John the Baptist was was taken. So that this is very close to that range. The other thing that he did, he's not well liked, by the way, in Israel. Um, but he built his castle. Get this. He built his castle, and it's still standing. Herod's temple is still there. You can see this castle part that he built, um, and it's still standing today, but he built it on top of a cemetery. Yeah, so any good, like, real serious Jew would never even set foot in it, because this is consecrated. That would make them unclean, all of that kind of stuff that goes with it, right? Good, so Herod, I mean, you get the sense that Herod... Um, now, let's just hold that thought for a minute, because I, I want to get to that in a little bit. But a second question that comes to mind right off the beginning here is, I see Herod, and I, I think I understand why Herod would think of Jesus as a threat. I mean, he's got the people following him, he's got, you know, uh, all of these prophecies, he's doing miracles, all the things that his, yeah, his dad was probably worried about. I would, the more I think about it, the more I think he's probably very well versed in all of this, right? So he's been watching for a while. Why do suddenly, now, I'll say suddenly, do some Pharisees decide to warn Jesus of the possible danger? In other words, wait a minute, what's in it for them? Like, aren't they, like, the antagonist to Jesus' protagonist kind of piece? So... Why, all of a sudden, where we've read so many times in the gospel, now they, they put together a plan how to kill Jesus, now all of a sudden, some Pharisees come and warn Jesus. What's their motive? Could it be for the people's favor? That's interesting. Okay, because by warning, the people would hear that and say, well, maybe they're on our side. Currying favor with the crowd. Politicians. Uh, they're going, which way is the wind blow? It could be like the Joseph story where the brothers wanted to kill him, but one brother wanted him to live, but just go away. Okay. Oh. All right. Well, I was thinking that this is just an easy way without confrontation to get Jesus out of their hair. Yeah, they haven't done so well in all the confrontations when they ask these <laughs> questions trying to catch him in the law. They've lost every one of those battles. So okay. why not call for Oh, it's the cops. The cops are out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to evaluate the motivation, right? Because we know from later stories, right, particularly with right... When Luke writes in Acts chapter 15 later on, he tells the story that many Pharisees came to Christ during the ministry of Luke. So there is one sense in which you could say, all right, some of these, maybe it's a Nicodemus type character or someone like that who has believed and is like really concerned that Herod is going to you know, mess up this plan that Jesus has. That's, that's possible. Anybody see another side? It could be they're afraid that he will usurp their power and influence over people, and so they want to push him away for their own. Yeah, I think we'd be wise to remember the power 
play here, right? Someone is always looking to be who is going to be the one in power here. It is interesting that um, throughout Luke's gospel, as you work your way through Luke's gospel, and we've we've only kind of jumped in in the middle of the gospel in this uh, summer season, but it's like the 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 battle between the Pharisees and Jesus in Luke's gospel, the way he portrays it, seems to be softening <coughs> as it goes along. In fact, um, a little bit earlier in chapter 7, verse 36, and then we're going to see it next week when we get back together in chapter 14, you're actually getting some of the Pharisees to invite him to their house or invite him to, to a meal. And so there is maybe a softening or maybe it's keep my enemies very close to me so I know what's going on. Who knows, right? It's a very interesting um, piece, but we can say that we shouldn't, um, we shan't, we shouldn't this automatically assume that the Pharisees' intentions here were were negative. David is giving me that look like his brain is got an idea. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I wasn't trying to be that. No, I, I guess my thought is, um, I mean, I know, I know, like typically traditionally, like we look at the Pharisees and we think, oh, like they're the bad guys of the story. They're you know, the evil people. Uh, but, I mean, like, we're talking about a sect of, of, of people, of, of people who, who, at least from all appearances, truly want to live out the word, word of God in their lives, right? Like, I mean, that's why they study, that's why they try to, you know, understand. Like, I don't, I don't think the people who are Pharisees go into becoming a Pharisee in order to, oh, this is a way I can exert power over people like pastors, right? Like, and so, you know, there, I would imagine there's, there's a large group of them who see this Jesus, and I mean, he's obviously in the temple, he's out there teaching. Several of them see that he does good things and that he does know the law. Um, you know, but maybe, maybe there is this element to them that, that does want to protect, you know, he's, he's one of them, at least from outside looking in, maybe we do want to protect this guy. You know? Does that make sense? Yeah. Do you read on down and cheat and going down in the story though? It seems more like he's I mean he makes the comment, you know, you who kill the prophets. I mean this he's not being very nice to the right. <laughs> to the Pharisees. Yeah. And I'm sure there's examples, but it seems like when one of the Pharisees, one of the quote good Pharisees Seems like they're specifically named. They're not grouped. Right. That's possible. Yeah. I mean, just. But Herod's an interesting is an interesting character in the sense in that we you know could automatically assume that yeah because of what happened like um, uh, well because of the influence perhaps of his father. But if you remember, on the one hand, in Luke chapter nine, um, and then later on at the end when Jesus stands before him, Herod's interest in Jesus was not in killing him. I mean, when he had the chance, he did it. So there's this weird thing, like, with Herod. Like, on the one hand, it's like, yeah, he's a threat to him, but it seems like, you remember when Jesus came to him, what did he want Jesus to do? Does anybody remember? When he stood before Herod. Yeah, he, he wanted him to be his puppet, you know? Here, do a miracle. Here, you know, dance for me in this way. So, yeah, it's weird. He doesn't necessarily want him dead. But, you know, um, he had that chance, but then again, he also imprisoned and then eventually beheaded John the Baptist. So he is not a stable person. I guess that's the best way to say it. The stable people are hard to pin. Unstable people are difficult to pin down. Right? Mm -hmm. All right, so let's take a look now at, um, 
at how Jesus responds, all right? So people come to him, and they're like, hey, Jesus, watch out, get away from here, because um, Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus said to them, go tell that fox, look, I'm throwing out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will complete my work. However, it's necessary, verse 33, for me to travel today, tomorrow, and the next day, because it's impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. So let's pause and take a look now at his response. Okay, Jesus responds. How does he respond to this news in your estimation? Does he seem surprised? Does he seem overly concerned, not concerned? How do you, as we say in Uganda, how do you see it? How do you read it? What's happening? I would say not concerned because he's keeps on doing what he's doing. Yeah, and he doesn't leave, right? So, like, if you're afraid and you're and you're concerned about it, the first thing you do is what? Probably go hide. or yeah. Stop doing. Yeah. You pack up, right? And you get out of dodge using that classic Western term. You get out of dodge, right? What else? He's got plans. He's got things to do. <laughs> not too concerned. He doesn't seem concerned. He's not even concerned enough to even alter the smallest part of the schedule. He even insults Herod. Say again? He even insults Herod by calling him a fox. Uh, wait a minute. I, I remember being called a fox. <laughs> Come on now. I'm sorry. You have a long memory. I <laughs> there. I kept going back to 
the only time, well, there, there's another time with Samson, but uh, in the Song of Solomon, they talk about um, the foxes in the vineyard. That's exactly right. Catch the foxes because they're messing up yep. the, the vines and the grapes and everything. Mm. Uh, and that's a very negative thing. You're, you know, the fox is tearing up the vineyard. Well, Jesus is is trying to maintain the vineyard that the vine dresser, which is a story in, in Isaiah, um, is he's, he's trying to fix it by casting out demons, by healing, and, and, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I kind of have to flesh that out a little bit better, but... Yeah, foxes are not well thought of in that culture. I mean, they are, as my grandfather used to say, they're varmints. Yeah. <laughs> my grandfather had a trap for just about every varmint. And that's it. What was one of his favorite words? He's like, well, we're going to go and get us some varmints. This morning, right? So, yeah, they weren't well thought of, right? So, what do you think Jesus, now remember, context, he's just been told, you might want to get out of here. Because, why? Herod wants to kill you, and your response is, man, but I've still got work to do. I still have work to do. Oh, but I think I'll just go ahead and I will, I will poke the bear, if you will. Do you think that Jesus expected that that word, that word, and his response would get back to Herod? Yes. So what's the purpose? Why? Why throw a? I mean, is this really Christ-like character? <laughs> As we used to say, girl. I mean, do we really want to be going around and and looking at our political leaders and calling them derogatory names? I mean, is that something that we want to be identified with as? As followers of Jesus. What do you think? What's he trying? What's the what's the uh, the purpose here? What's he trying to accomplish? He knows he's moving towards his death, and so it's just a piece. It's just one more piece of the puzzle that he knows that's eventually happening anyway. Okay. So he's not worried because he already knows he what knows his he, end is? He knows what his end is. So And he knows that has nothing to do with Herod? He's not trying to preserve his life. He's, he knows he's giving up his life for the sins of so the why insult him. Yeah, I'm just trying to figure out why the why the jab. Go tell that fox. Kings back then wanted to be, you know, connected with lions. <laughs> the lion of Judah, right? I don't want to be a jackal. I don't want to be a fox, a varmint that goes around slinking through the vineyards and stealing the stuff that doesn't belong to you. Maybe in a way to invalidate Herod's authority. Okay. That's an interesting Because he's not, he was, he's not in his right mind for one thing. And like you said earlier, he didn't really, he's, he's a king in name only. Okay. And I found this cell response to that too, right? So that sends a message to the crowd that it it doesn't matter who he thinks he is. I know who I am and what it is that I have to do, and I'm going to keep going. And that keeps the crowd kind of riled up. It, it doesn't lose any steam. For it. if he back down, then that's one thing. But to say not just in the insult, but I'm still going to keep moving, keeps that crowd where they need to be. Yeah, he puts some courage into the crowd. Okay. 
Um, I found a thing that I thought was interesting. Uh, the use of foxes and sons of foxes in scripture, they said, refers to worthless, degenerate rulers who are descendants of worthless, degenerate rulers. <laughs> and and it, I mean, it kind of felt, feels like Jesus was kind of pointing out to everybody, he's not a part of this story. Like, yeah. Herod is completely irrelevant to what I'm about to do. And that's, I think that's a great observation because... Um, especially when we look at the way that he responds. Let's look again now. What, what, um, what's the message he tells the Pharisees to deliver back to Herod? After he insults him. Remember, he says, now you go and tell that fox, that worthless son of a worthless varmint, that, what? It's right there. He's going to keep on doing work. What is he going to, but specifically, he's going to throw out demons, he's going to heal people for three more days. Three more days. Yeah. All right, so he's, he's restoring, right? He's curing demons, of, he's, cure, he's um, curing people of their demons, of sickness, they're, and when that happens, they're being restored to their neighborhoods, they're being restored to their communities. So it's not just, the ones he picks here, it's not just like individual things where this person is being, you know, healed or this person. It's this bigger thing that he's doing something big in the community, in this, among the people of God. And he's not going to stop doing that because some son of a useless son of a piece of trash, varmint, is threatening to kill him. You had to look like you're... No, get ready to say something, right? Could this also not be, I mean, directed towards the Pharisees as much because he comes down and says because it's impossible for a prophet to be killed out of Jerusalem. I mean, he's pointing at himself and saying, I'm a prophet. Yeah, that's an interesting phrase because on the surface, I actually spent a little bit of time, I did, uh, Chris walked in last night, I was like, I think I have to translate this. So I actually went back and, and translated it because when you read that statement, it's impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. You look in the context of the other gospel times when Jesus talks about prophets. He starts with as far back as Abel, goes through Noah and on. It's like, yeah, a lot of prophets are killed outside of Jerusalem. So some people put to, pick to, you know, they, they point to this and say, here's a here's an inconsistency in scripture where Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about, and yada yada yada, right? But it's one of those things. It's it's impossible for. It's how it says it in our translation. It's impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. And the word, um, by the way, it's the only time that expression is used, that phraseology. So it's anytime it's the only time, it's usually pretty unclear and it's difficult sometimes. Um, certainly he's making the statement in the context of his death, which would occur in the city of Jerusalem. So there's one way of which he's saying, you know, none of this, Herod has nothing to do with this because... Um, my death and the plan for me is something that's going to take place in Jerusalem, not here. I don't have to leave this place. Uh, he's in Perea, outside of Jure uh, Judea. So he's outside, technically, of the reign of Herod at this moment. But he said, yes, at one day I'm going to have to go back there. But really, you know, it's, it's not going to have anything to do with him. So the Greek word for this, impossible, ouk and komai, which is not... So uk is not, it's the absolute negative in Greek. So it's like, it's impossible. And the next word is difficult, because sometimes it's translated possible, which is what we did here. 
Um, that word is the same one that's in Luke's gospel. It is, nothing is impossible for God. Mm. That's the same word. But here, it's also translated in other places as permissible. Mm. So it's not permissible for a prophet, and notice it says a prophet there. Again, there's no articles here. So we're inserting an article mm -hmm. to try to connect all of the words. It's like, not permissible prophet, you know, dead kind of thing, and they're putting in, and so some people think it's Jesus saying, he's basically, we should be using a definite article instead of an indefinite article. Mm -hmm. The difference would be, instead of a prophet, the, the, it's impossible to kill the prophet, once again identifying himself as the Messiah, the one whose death has been um, already foretold, right. that it's going to take place in Jerusalem. That's the translation I think that makes the most sense. Right? Which he describes above. Correct. I mean, that's a description of the prophet. And he's going to be tried. Does anybody remember specifically what was Jesus tried on? What was the charge brought? Anybody remember? Heresy. Uh, different word, but close. Blasphemy. Blasphemy. And what's blasphemy? Huh? He claimed to be God. He claimed to be God, and so blasphemy could only be tried by the Sanhedrin, by the council of that day. So Herod has nothing to do with the trial over blasphemy. If he had been charged with sedition or or treachery or traitor or something, whatever language there is for that, that would be a different thing. But he's being charged with blasphemy, which is only specifically to do with that. So in that context, he's saying, Herod's not going to have anything to do with what's going to happen to me. Now, we could easily read this, and we probably did. You saw first day. Next day and third day, and you probably jumped resurrection. There's probably there is probably a play on words here because then the next he repeats it again, right underneath. And what does he say? Today, tomorrow. Today, tomorrow, and the next. There's no day in the original, but just today, tomorrow, and the next. So there's like a little bit of a play on words. He's like, I'm going to finish what I started in this region today. I'm going to be here for a few more days, almost like saying to Herod, Come on. I'll be here. I'm not worried. Do you get that? I'm not worried. Um, so in a lot of ways, he's actually safer where he is now than he would be if he went back to Judea. As soon as he crosses the border, he's back under. So he's like, yeah, come and get me. Not really. I don't think he's safe that, but He's safer where he is now, all right? Uh, any other thoughts on those? Because he doesn't go, he continues on now, last couple of verses, and then we'll finish up with this. Okay, we got just a couple minutes, all right? This is what he says now. So he says, it's necessary for me to travel today, tomorrow, and the next day, because it's, improb it's impossible, um, it's not uh, part of God's plan for a prophet, this prophet, the prophet, um, to be killed outside of Jerusalem. And since he's talking about Jerusalem, he carries on with the metaphor, right? Jerusalem... Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who were sent to you, how often I have wanted to gather your people just as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you didn't want that. Look, your house is abandoned. I tell you, you won't see me until the time comes when you say, Blessings on the one who comes in the Lord's name. We know where that takes place, right? Yeah, the triumphal entry on the Sunday or the weekend before, 
right? The Passover before um, the Passover there. So you're not going to see me until then. So a couple things come to mind there. Jesus is, this is a lament, a classic lament. Okay, we've seen these before. Why do you think Jesus continues this metaphor by comparing himself to a mother hen and wanting to gather Jerusalem together and shield her? So this is one of the instances where God in the form of Jesus is taking on a feminine quality. Why in this instance, in the midst of all of this, this is the moment for toxic masculinity, right? Someone's coming after me. <coughs> right, Brian? I mean, if there's ever a chance for men to want to be like, arr, 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 yeah. But instead, he gives an imagery, a feminine imagery for God about a mother hen wanting to gather Jerusalem together and shield her. That mothers have to protect their young to perpetuate the species. That's interesting. So, so they have to do everything they can to shield them. Okay. She's willing to give her life to save the chicks. If you want to go down that. Okay. What's Jesus saying with this imagery? I also see in my version that he refers to them as children. Okay. Or young ones. Okay. And that's significant to you for what reason? Well, again, the children are young and innocent and okay, don't know it. any better. Uh-huh. All right. Does he including, by the way, do you think he's including the Pharisees in that lament over Jerusalem? Jerusalem is... Is he speak? Is he talking just about the city, or is there more to it? The people. The people. Yeah, it's Jerusalem here. I think is being used to picture, yeah, God's people. Remember the ones that, yeah, the Jewish nation. Yeah. So what's uh, what's Jesus saying with this imagery? Comparing yourself to a mother wanting to gather. You know, in the animal kingdom, if you go after a mother's offspring, you beat any masculine <laughs> you know whatever I mean there's nothing is protective and is aggressive and I kind of get the sense that he's wanting to go in there and protect the people and just you know just blow up everything get rid of all this other stuff but instead there's a mission to accomplish and so he's you know he's taking that route it's interesting that um, I didn't grow up on a farm. I grew up in the city. Um, but uh, we are, in some ways, farmers in Uganda because we have all kinds of animals. Chickens. Chickens. And one of them had just birthed, right before we got there, had just birthed, I don't know how many, a dozen? A dozen. A dozen or so. And they, they, decided, they decided to take up a, a house, right, in one area over um, in a little coffee section where we tossed a bunch of, uh, they had tossed a bunch of the... Um, the, the, the compost and the grass that they had cut and put it there so it was beautiful for a nest that they could bury on in there. But then about, I don't know, about 11 o'clock in the afternoon or in the morning, you would see the mother would get up and then you would just see this whole little progression of the little, the little chicks coming after her. And she would go into my brand new built garage for my Boda Boda. 
Because I would leave the door open, like I'd get the bike out, and I'd leave the, and she would go in there, and sure enough, in the corner, she would just sit there during the hottest part of the day, and she would have all of her little chicks gathered around her in there until, of course, I pulled in with my motorcycle, and then everything goes, <laughs> and the kids go running out. But the one thing that you noticed is as soon as the mother left, they're following. They want to get right back underneath. But Jesus says the opposite, right? Why do you think the baby chicks, in this metaphor, wouldn't want to find shelter under their mother's wing? I mean, that's the, the picture is, that's the natural thing. And Jesus is saying, I want to do this. I want to be like this mother hen to gather you. So why don't they want that? Because we're chicks. We're people. We have minds of our own. And I think it's pointing out the part about free will. Okay. Well, but in our free will, uh, we choose not to trust in, in the Lord then. I mean, the, this is going all the way back to, to Sinai. Like, Today is the um, day that allegedly um, they built the golden calf. The, this, this is what the stages have gone through and everything. And, and that was kind of one of those deals that, uh, where's Moses? Where's God? We need something. <coughs> so we're going to create our own thing. and, and this, this deal about him wanting to to cover, you know, be their their wings, cover their wings is the word kanaf, which uh, on a on a prayer robe, a Jewish prayer shawl thingy, the edges of their hem is called are called wings, and you can actually you know cloak someone and protect them like that, and and I. I think that's what God has always wanted to do. And he's talking to the, the, to the nation. Israel. Correct. Yeah, he's talking to Israelites. He's not talking to us. Uh, we're, we're reading the mail here. Uh, but he's always wanted to cover them and protect them because he chose them special. And they didn't want that. They wanted to be like all the other nations. I want, you know, I want a king like this God. You know, and, and stuff like that. I, I don't want to trust you. <coughs> I want to trust what I see out here and think that I know what's best. That's a great observation because the tendency that we have, and as we kind of wrap this up, is is um, Jesus is talking specifically about Jerusalem, the nation. I've wanted, I wanted to be your protector. I want to be the one you turn to. I want to be the one who cares for you. But you have chosen to not do that. Again and again and again, right? And so there's that sense in which um, when we read these things, right, we have a, 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 this habit of personalizing Scripture, right? So, yes, it's true. We all have individual will, and we, we go this way naturally because we've been taught to, to read things in our, in our experience of, of Scripture that way. And we look for ourselves in the text, in the text or ask questions, of ourselves at an individual level, and that's not, that's certainly, it's not wrong. I'm not suggesting that that's wrong. But when we take a, a, a text like this, which it seems to me is about systems and institutions and the broader, you know, the bigger picture, um, like for us, instead of saying Israel, we might say the, the church, as in like the entirety of those who, who follow Jesus in the Second Testament. 
Um, that might be the larger picture here. So when Jesus laments over Jerusalem, he's weeping over a, a system that refuses to acknowledge God's work among them. Is that a fair statement, do you think? Well, I think it's also beautiful, the, the contrast that Jesus puts in. It's like, all right, Herod's trying to kill, yet I want to protect you in compassion, and I'm going to die for you. Right. So it's, 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 even, it's, it's comparing the way that he wants to rule by your restoring and yes. bringing connection and community. You to the point of death. Exactly. The other one is separate. Death is separation and break mm -hmm. apart. That's a great observation. And there are certainly individuals in that system that were following Jesus, but um, there was a sense that each person was a part of something bigger. So when Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and everybody around him, he's saying, you're part of this system that has rejected me um, as the one who wants to rule and reign and care for you and all of these, these things. So my question is, since Jesus seems to be weeping over the system of Jerusalem, what systems exist in our culture and time periods that create a potential similar weeping or mourning by Jesus? There. There's a question worth about a thousand words. What are some of the systems that exist in our culture and time period that we as a, we as a church, even, and I'll even say at, that we put into place as followers. Let's not even, let's not just go to the natural, crazy political world that we could go to and what's happening, and there is all of that, but we can also talk about within our own system. I think some of our church systems, some of the things that the different, um, the different churches fight about, can't agree upon as scripture or um, parts of the culture. I think he would grieve over because some of those things don't even matter that we fight over. How often we do communion? How often we do baptism? Can you wear pants? Do you have to wear dresses? Do you have to wear a hat now? I mean, all of those different things that separate these different um, types of churches, he would grieve over that because it doesn't matter. So the things that the the things that we focus in on that are so inconsequential, mm -hmm. and yet we make them so consequential. That it's divided the church. Yeah. That we say horrible things about other churches and, and come up with, well, that's the way they act, and have that as the, a way of talking bad about that other group that's also worshiping the same God. I think possessions can be that too, and time. Say that again? Possessions. Oh, possessions. Mm -hmm. Okay. How, how tied we are to in our worth. To the things we possess or what we go after? Is that what you're talking about in terms of? Just that we give that oh. more, sometimes more love and more time. Just and raw capitalism. Then to him. <laughs> yeah. I see what you're saying. So, yeah, in, in the competition between, you know, followership and the accumulation of things. Material items versus spiritual gotcha. items. Okay. Yeah. More time spent with both. Yeah, you just get wrapped up. I think when we make sin a political issue rather than like doing our jobs as Christians to love people, <laughs> like I, I think when we politicize the sin of others, if that makes sense, or what we deem sin, we're putting on our government the role of policing 
sinful behavior rather than allowing God to be the judge and loving people into the kingdom. And I think in doing that, we focus more on their sin than looking at ourselves. Yeah. That's kind of where we ended up last week, right? That's the problem. <laughs> it's like, how, how, how many few? And I, I want to add that one in because that one stuck to me. Last week when we were talking about, um, please tell me Jesus the way I read it. Please tell me Jesus there will only be a few. <laughs> and that they look just like me. Right? So that idea that we have, you know, we, we have this idea of who's in and who's out and this, this I don't know, this hyper-focus we have on making sure we know who's in and who's out as if we somehow should be treating them differently. Which Jesus didn't seem to do that. But anyway, anything else? Marriage. Government's got all sorts involved in marriage, so. so the Bible is man and woman, but now it's whatever you want to be. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Because in the scripture, it's man and woman until it's one man and one woman until it's not. Because Israel took it and decided we want to have many wives like the other nations. Yeah, let's see that. Anything else? About wealth classifications, how we tend to look at people that aren't as fortunate as we are in a different way. You know, say they're bad because they don't have any money. I mean, I could hear my mother say, this is terrible, sorry, Mom. Well, this is a good neighborhood. That wouldn't happen here. It's like, mm-hmm. give me a break. <laughs> Part of that systemic way we just group everything together. Right? Yeah. Well, they're even that now in the news saying that some of these people are getting off from zero bail, no cash bail. They're going back to the poor neighborhoods, not coming to the richer neighborhoods, which are the people that are releasing with no cash bail. So they're going back to where they came from to terrorize. It's a different system. Yeah, they're treat two different systems depending on whether, whether you have or you have not. And Jesus didn't like that, by the way. The have versus the have nots. And that's one of the things that the nation did wrong, right? Constantly. They didn't care for the widows, their orphans. I mean, we could have a conversation about that, right? They didn't care for the Samaritans. Hmm? Or the way they treated, yeah, people they thought they deemed to be other. All right. Well, this. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Table Dallas podcast. We invite you to join the conversation at one of our upcoming tables. To learn more about us, please check out our website at thetabledallas.com. And remember, we're saving a seat for you at the table.